anyway, <laughs> should we start our podcast? I guess we should start our podcast. It's 9.15 at night. It's fine. <laughs> no one cares. Welcome to Spin, the drunk special interest podcast by neurodivergent people for neurodivergent people. I'm Amias. My pronouns are he, him. I'm Charlie. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, we're here to talk about keyboards today. Yes, we're here to talk about printing and typing and the history thereof and i promise i'll try and make it fun you actually like took fucking notes for this so it's gonna be god it's gonna be fucking educational also i mean you asked me to put together a powerpoint presentation and i did not do that i just i have you ever seen those things where it's like people go to luigi a party is not in the powerpoint presentation they, they have i'm to sorry put together a three minute presentation and whoever does the best one while they're drunk gets a, an award or something. I just think that would be fun. Isn't that where the PowerPoint defining a himbo came from? I think so. I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's a good one, though. That's very good. Anyway. Uh-huh. Sorry, I also got distracted when you mentioned the, the himbo PowerPoint because I was just thinking about... The, literally, that was the first time I even, like, contemplated the fact that Joseph Joestar is a himbo. He obviously is, but it genuinely never occurred to me until I saw that. I think the first time I saw that PowerPoint, I scrolled past it because I wasn't sure what a himbo was. I should have stopped because that would have saved me a lot of worry about what a himbo is. <laughs> I'm sorry, now what I'm just... What a himbo is, Vita. <laughs> That's what I was thinking <laughs> Sam fucking, like, <laughs> tweeting, what a himbo is. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Sam Lake is a gift to this world. <laughs> okay. Um, typing. Give us the history. People have been printing copies of text and images for a really, really long time, obviously. Are you going to talk about the original printing press? Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of early printing presses. We don't actually know what the original was. Sorry, I just get excited about things that I know about from Warehouse 13. Yes, uh, Gutenberg does come up. Yes. In my plans. Excellent. A little bit. <laughs> um, people have been printing and copying things for a really long time. Probably a very, very long time. I would argue that cuneiform is a type of related here because it's just sort of pressing a shape into a thing so yeah i suppose so if you were to press out a cuneiform tablet you could conceivably let that tablet dry press more clay over it and peel that clay back out and you would have a negative and you could copy that i don't have any records of somebody having done that but it's hard for me to believe they hadn't that's true a lot of the, like, I know some things about cuneiform tablets and, and that particular era. The reason that we have certain things preserved and other things not preserved is because most of the, like, because it's, you know, they it was writing in clay. They usually, they, they didn't, like, fire and harden and keep the tablets that they wrote on most of the time. They were, you know squished up and remolded and reused over and over again. So, like, the only things that we have record of um, in, like, written language from from that time period is 
one particular find that I thought was very interesting was a bunch of tablets that got accidentally fired because they were in the back room of a, a house that burned down. Oh. Uh, so the heat from the house fire uh, hardened all of these clay tablets that were used for record keeping for this one business. So we have oh. a ridiculous amount of history about like this one business in ancient Samaria and very little about anything else. And then that's we dumb. have records from like carved monuments that had cuneiform on them. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like, the records that we have are weird incidents that they probably wouldn't have been preserved otherwise because clay tablets were just reused. But yeah. you do make a compelling point that you absolutely could just, like, fire a, a pressed tablet and use it to make negatives and make copies of something. And, like, you're fucking right. People probably did do that. I cannot believe that no one would have thought of that. Right. Somebody probably did. And the thing is, I don't think you would even necessarily need to fire the clay. I think you could just let it air dry for a few days, mm -hmm. and then it would be set enough to press more clay on top of it without damaging the surface. Yeah, there definitely are, like, artifacts of... And you could fire the negative if you wanted to, but I think you could also just let the negative dry, make your copies, and reuse the negative by wetting it again. Yeah. There's, like, a, a lot of artifacts that we have from not only, like, that era and location, but lots of places are, like, negatives of carvings that were pressed into things over and over again. Things like sealing wax stamps, but also things that were used to press, like, a signature or a symbol into right. play. Stamps. That's, th I think that could be considered a form of printing as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I don't have stamps and their history in my notes, but I definitely think so. Mm -hmm. And... Related to that, printing would have started with that kind of single large negative, right? You've got mm -hmm. the, the ring that stamps into the sealing wax, or you've got the whole tablet that you would press out, lino cuts and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. where you can paint the surface of a carved surface and stamp the paper against it to make the impression. Mm -hmm. um, movable type was an innovation on that where you could have each character of the language and move it around as you need it inside of a frame in order to press your text. Yeah. Can you give like a brief explanation of what what defines like movable type? Sure. Movable type uh, as... That's like printing presses, right? Not necessarily. It's a component of most printing presses. Okay. So movable type, um, you would have... I'm going to do this by talking about the first known creator we have of movable type. Uh-huh. Bai Sheng. Uh, Bi Sheng. I'm probably not pronouncing his name right. I am not Chinese. Um, in the 10th century mm -hmm. AD in China... Um, what is that? The year 900? 900 something? 12th century. 1100, I think. Okay. Or 1090s, um, I think was the date. But Bi Sheng created porcelain tiles of different Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. He would carve uh, into the clay for the porcelain and affix together the strokes needed to create the Chinese characters on the page. Mm -hmm. He was manually making negatives by hand, mm -hmm. which then, if you wanted to, you could flip them over and stamp them onto a paper individually, mm -hmm. and that would leave the impression of that character, right? Mm -hmm. What he did to innovate off of that, instead of just, you know, fixing each one into a sculpture and then firing it or anything like that, he took those and he he put 
wax or yeah, I, I think it was beeswax onto a steel plate um, and would affix those characters onto the plate in the correct order for the page that he wanted to print. Okay. And he printed the whole page at once. Okay. The fact that he had each of those individual characters and could move them around on the plate as he wanted, mm -hmm. that's what defines movable type. So that's the first printing press. Arguably. It's the first one we really know about. There was a lot of independent convergent design going on uh -huh. and a lot of exchange of ideas that we just don't have documented. That's extremely cool. Uh, Bi Shang's print press, I just read about it, is it's he would uh, affix them onto this plate and let the beeswax like dry, cure, so that it was hard enough to accept the print. Yeah. And then uh, after he was done with that particular negative, mm -hmm. he set it next to a fire, the beeswax melted, and he could reuse his negatives. Uh -huh. So he could remove that type and use it for a different print. Okay, so because it was on like a metal black back plate, the metal would get yes. hot enough to melt it off. Yes. That's very cool. It was, it was ingenious. Uh -huh. um, printing spread across East Asia um, through China, Korea, and Japan really fast. It took off wildly. Printing got really popular. Yeah, because copying down um, shit in a language that has symbols that mean a word rather than an individual letter or sound is probably a pain in the ass. Yes. Printing in general was also really popular. Yeah. Um, woodcuts in particular. Yeah, and, like block printing. And clay block printing and that sort of thing uh, was really, really popular in Japan and China. In in the history that I've seen, there were, you know, art prints going around. You could copy art as well as text. So movable type was less useful just because their main medium of expression involved drawing as well as writing. Mm -hmm. That's how most of the prints took off, and that's probably why movable type specifically wasn't as widely spread in those regions for several centuries. Yeah, that's probably true. Because woodcuts served the purpose that they needed to target better. Mm -hmm. So Gutenberg uh -huh. uh, was alive in the 1400s. This would be two or three hundred years after Bi Shang. Mm -hmm. um, he was the first, arguably, to introduce movable type to Europe. He is certainly the most well-known because he uh, was the first to use an easy-to-access metal alloy to create his movable type. What were they made of? Um, I don't have it written down, but uh, tin was easy to come by, mm -hmm. iron was easy to come by, and those were two of the main metals. Okay. Um, is that what pewter is made of? Possibly. His movable type mm -hmm. was in square rods. Yeah. And you would have the negative for the letter on the end of this long square rod. Yeah. And the rod you would place down into a wooden frame alongside a bunch of other metal blocks that had all of the other letters you would need for your page. Okay. And so when you tightened the metal frame down, much like stretching a canvas, uh -huh. it would hold all of that type in place so that you could flip it over and press it. Oh, yeah, I can visualize what you're talking about. This probably had been done before, mm -hmm. but they either used wood or something else that would degrade a lot faster than metal and so could make fewer copies, mm -hmm. or they uh, used a harder to find metal, or they didn't have it in that kind of wood frame, mm -hmm. or they didn't have a press mechanism where instead of manually flipping the frame, 
uh, you had it lifted by a lever system. Mm-hmm. Um, he had it set up in the frame on this lever system so that you could position your paper and you'd always get the same print. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what truly made it what is widely known as the first printing press. Another reason he's really well known is that his whole reason for making the printing press, as far as it's told, was to copy the Bible and translate it into German, which most people in his area could read. He wanted it to be accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's why it's called the Gutenberg Bible. I'm a dumbass. That's why it's called the Gutenberg Bible. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> because it's the first copy of the Bible that was translated into German and then into English. Okay. Um, well, that's cool. Yes. It's the Gutenberg Bible. It's the Gutenberg Bible. I'm a dumbass. <laughs> You're good. Um, the Benikoff TV. The Benikoff TV. The Benikoff TV. We really got to talk about control sometimes. Oh my God, we do. I have to finish it. Uh, <laughs> I have to actually get the Benikoff TV. <laughs> Gutenberg. Yeah. Like I said, Gutenberg... His main invention was Mm -hmm. combining a lot of different techniques to create something that was more advanced than anything else in that time period. Mm -hmm. Um, It was not invention necessarily so much as innovation on an idea that was already pretty spread. Yeah. Movable type was around in other areas. Frames and printing was already around. And I'm sure that lever presses for block printing existed as well. Mm -hmm. But he combined all of these ideas and he tried to spread something that a lot of people really wanted. So his idea and his name took hold. Mm -hmm. So he gets a lot of history credit for that. That's valid. Just by doing a desired thing at uh, at an inflammatory time. Yeah, doing a thing that fulfills a need. Yes. At a time when that need is present. Yes. Yeah. And that need was widespread. A lot of people really wanted to know what was in their Bibles. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, that's a Christianity thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> the movable type press was important and spread really fast and really wide. Uh-huh. Um, if you wanted something printed once, you would usually just write it out yourself. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted something printed a hundred times, you would find someone who had a movable type machine and they would create a blank and press it for you a hundred times. Yeah, or back in the day, you would hire a bunch of monks to copy something out a hundred times. Exactly. This was this a, was a lot faster. Infinitely faster. And a lot cheaper. Yeah. Because you weren't having to provide for the labor of a hundred monks. Yeah, to be fair though, I do think there is something very cool and aesthetic about like illuminated manuscripts. Oh yes. And that is that's something I want to read more about. Right. At some point. <laughs> if the illuminations themselves had been a more important and present part of the work, I think we could have run into a similar problem as uh, China did mm-hmm. with movable type not taking off as easily mm-hmm. because the imagery is so prominent as a part of the expression and their language. Huh. A lot of their literature just has it. <laughs> yeah, that's I hadn't thought of that before. That's a good point. But another added complication in East Asia for movable type to take off mm-hmm. is that there's thousands of characters in every alphabet. Yes. Um, because <laughs> they represent ideas rather than just the sounds that make up the language. Yeah. There's so many more of them. Mm-hmm. In English and German, there's like 27. 
Yeah. German has more letters than English, but it's still under like 30. German has the same amount of letters, just some of them have, uh, what's the word, diacritic marks? No, there's also different letters. Oh, well, no, yeah, they the, have 28. The weird B. They have 28. Yeah, the weird B looking thing is a separate letter. Yeah, it's an S. Mm-hmm. It's, it, a it's like two S's. S's. Yeah, but um, because of the limited number of letters, it made block printing a lot more feasible because you wouldn't have to make thousands and thousands of negatives and then be able to search through them. Yeah. If for movable type to work, you have to be able to find the right letters. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I wouldn't want to dig through a box of 3,000 characters. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you've only got one copy of each. Oh my god, that would take so fucking long. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> Which is, yeah, probably part of the issue. Um, if you've only got one copy of each, how do you make a whole page of something then? You probably wouldn't only have one copy of each. You'd probably have like 7,000 characters to sift through. Oh my god. That's the point at which you have to have like a box with little sections in it, and each little section is mm-hmm. very clearly labeled. Yes. And they probably did. Good. Because <laughs> historical innovation is always further than we think it is. But yeah, there's a lot of reasons movable type took off easier in Europe. It had yeah. a lot less difficulty taking off in Europe. Smaller alphabet. <laughs> yes. It do be like that, huh? Yes. Um, there's also the element that we just hear more about European history than, you know. Yeah, that's it's, fair. It's used to teach more often in Western areas than East Asian history, which should arguably not be true, but... Yeah, nobody from here knows fucking anything about any kind of world history. They don't tell us anything. They all, they tell us maybe like the five things about England and then they say US only. Learn about the last 200 years. Anyway. Yeah, time to be salty about lack of history education. I... I've never been interested in history ever in my life because I originally I thought it was because I don't think history is interesting but actually I just am not fucking interested in American history is the thing Mm -hmm. I just don't give a shit (laughs) what I am very interested in is ancient Sumerian and ancient Egyptian history which I've been reading an awful lot about lately (laughs) <laughs> well, anyway, moving continue. on back to the U.S. No, how dare you? It's not. It's not U.S. political history. I promise. <laughs> Rude. It's U.S. typewriter history, okay, which is so. much more interesting. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I hate you. So, <laughs> the first typewriters. There's there's a lot of different ideas of playing with the idea of movable type on some sort of mechanism so that you can press a button and the right type will hit the page. That's typewriter. That's typewriter. (laughs) There's designs that go all the way back to Spain in the 1600s. There's designs from there that are iterating on this concept of moving the type uh, through pushing individual buttons rather than placing the type manually. and everyone was hoping to get faster than handwriting and make something that could be distributed to people so that you could easily write and not have to worry about like handwriting being guessed at. Yeah. And handwriting's slow. 
Yeah, I can type much faster than I can handwrite. Right. Most people can, even if they write really fast in cursive. I can type approximately as fast as a lot of people I know can talk, which is good and efficient. I make a lot of typos, but like, it's fine. Typing fast, good. Typing, That's the goal. Typing fast was the goal because handwriting was slow and people wanted to be faster for all sorts of applications, mm -hmm. uh, like dictation. Mm -hmm. The first iterations of typewriters, uh, there was a lot of progress on designs in the 1800s particularly in the US. That's what I have the most documentation on um, because that's where the first commercial typewriters were distributed. In the late 1800s, yes, yeah. in the 1870s. Looking um, at your notes there. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, was, I didn't have the date. In the 1870s, Remington and Sons uh, produced the Remington typewriter, mm -hmm. which they bought on a patent from the original designer. And that was the first commercial typewriter ever sold. Mm -hmm. Remington, being the first commercial typewriter, was also the first well-selling typewriter. And uh -huh. it standardized the keyboard layout for literally 200 years to come. Is that the one that we still use then? <laughs> yes. The, the original keyboard? The original designer, I think his last name was Scholes. Mm -hmm. um, his design was slightly different from a standard QWERTY keyboard layout, mm -hmm. um, but it was close. QWERTY doesn't have a reason to be the way it is now. QWERTY is arbitrary as we use it today. It's a de facto standard because of the mechanical limitations of typewriters. Yeah, you've when, mentioned this before. I know I have because I talk about typing constantly. I know, I love you. <laughs> when, when you press a key <laughs> on a typewriter, uh, it moves a, a metal arm that has the letter negative on it, mm -hmm. and it stamps through a ribbon covered in powder ink uh, onto the paper to leave the letter mark. Mm -hmm. If you press two of those arms at the same time, uh, they have a strong chance of getting stuck together and jamming, and then you have to manually move them back in order to keep typing. Otherwise, all of your other keys are just going to hit the other letters, and you're going to just have nothing on your page. Yeah. Or a terrible mix of everything on your page. Or they all continually get stuck to each other, and then you have all of the keys a broken stuck together at once. That's actually a really, really common problem you see in antique Remington typewriters. Mm -hmm. The the QWERTY layout was designed to move keys that, well, not quite the QWERTY layout. The, the QWERTY layout, but with the R and the period swapped from where we t typically see them, mm -hmm. uh, was designed so that those keys would not be pressed in sequence, and the levers, the keys that would be pressed in sequence were far apart from each other, so the levers had more clearance of each other. They okay. were less likely to get caught and cause a jam. So the most common letters being all close together is what they were trying to avoid with that. Yes, which makes Why it... Why are A and S so close to each other still then? Which makes it inherently inefficient. Um, a and S are actually not as common together as you would think. E and R are much more common. I think that was the company's mistake. Um, they... When Remington bought the patent off of the designer, uh, they swapped the position of where he had placed the period key and the R key. Mm -hmm. So instead of period being in the bottom right of the keyboard, and instead of R being in the bottom right of the keyboard, uh, P 
period was what they put there and r was placed up with the rest of the letters mm -hmm. that was probably to make it easier for their common users to comprehend the letter placements mm -hmm. but it does result in jams a lot more often and with because e and r are more likely to be used close to each other e and r are some of the most commonly placed together letters of the english language e is the most common letter in the english language yes i don't think r is high up on the list though it's e a s no but something else think how many letter how many words end in e r okay that's true huh I mostly know this from like learning about cryptography and stuff. If you're trying to um, crack a cipher that you know is in English, you look for whatever the most common symbol is and you assume that that's E and then you go from there. That makes sense. Um, because E is the most common letter in the English mm -hmm. language. I have a list somewhere of um, what letters are, are most common in what languages and, you know, what order of commonality they go in so that mm -hmm. you can, you know, figure out ciphers using that. Right. But that specifically, if you're only looking at how common each individual letter is, that wouldn't have been as useful okay. for someone who was trying to design something that would not have two letters strike at the same time. Right. So you... When Remington swapped the R and the period uh, to make it look better, essentially, to mm -hmm. their potential customers, yeah. they probably did end up selling more typewriters. Mm -hmm. But almost every antique Remington, at least every antique Remington I have ever seen mm -hmm. in a shop has been horrendously jammed. The problem with the antique Remington mm -hmm. is that... Sorry, I just love typewriters. That's what really started this special interest. Anyway. Um, <laughs> You're valid. I love you. The the first and second Remington typewriters, uh, you couldn't see what you were typing as you typed. They were under strike. Um, so when you pressed a key, the levers went up uh, and it smacked the bottom of the roller with your paper, which was hidden underneath the plate that held the roller so that the page would stay in place. Okay. The page goes around this wood or metal or rubber roller, um, and that's what holds it in place so you can rotate it line to line to move your typing. Mm -hmm. But with the original Remington, you would have to lift a plate, stop typing, in order to see what you've typed and whether you've caused a jam. Okay. So if you start a jam and you don't think to check because it doesn't sound very different from normal typing noises, mm -hmm. you could cause a 30-key pileup without realizing it. Uh. And if you cause a 30-key pileup, sometimes there's irreversible damage to your typewriter unless you take it to an expert. Uh. So a lot of antique Remingtons are broken. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> they can be fixed with a lot of time and care. But if you could just go buy another Remington instead of paying to take it to an expert, some people did that. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. But another thing that popularized QWERTY as Remington made it mm -hmm. um, was that they offered typing classes. So oh. everyone who learned to touch type learned from Remington and learned on a Remington. So everyone who made typewriters started making Remington-like typewriters. Okay. So the layout got standardized because they were the ones teaching people how to use it. Right. Okay. Um, as it is today, it still makes some sense because the way we use our typewriters, 
our our computer keyboards. Sorry, I'm living in the 1870s now. <laughs> yeah, the way you type. The way we type now. Um, <clears throat> touch typing does take a long time to learn. I took several classes for it as a child, um, uh -huh. and I'm pretty good at it now. But uh, you just have to move your fingers up or down from their main centered positions. Mm -hmm. But we stray off of home row a lot, the row where our, key our fingers actually sit during the typing process, the center position. Mm -hmm. There was a designer in the 1930s who wanted to change that. He theorized that keeping most common letters on the main row of keys would speed up your typing a lot. Mm -hmm. That was Dvorak. Okay. He'd... I recognize that name. Yes. Dvorak was a designer. I do not recall his first name. There's a font named after that person. Dvorak is not just a font. It's a keyboard layout. It's his keyboard layout. Okay. It takes all of those most commonly used letters, mm -hmm. A, S, E, etc., mm -hmm. that you were talking about, and it places them on the center row of the keys. Mm-hmm so that you don't have to stretch your fingers up or down as far. Was this a, a typewriter guy? Wouldn't that just cause more jams? It, it was a typewriter guy, but by the 30s, there was a lot more innovation on how to keep typewriter keys from hitting each other. Okay, that's fair. Um, studies that I have read are controversial on whether or not the Dvorak layout is actually any faster, but I would bet it reduces finger strength. Probably, yeah. Because you don't have to stretch your hand as far or contort it as much to type the words you want to type. Hmm. However, there's also not typing lessons for Dvorak, uh, and people are still teaching QWERTY. So most commonly, people are still learning QWERTY. Yeah. It has been the standard for 150 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I talked about Remington. You did. I didn't talk about the development that fixed the main problem with Remington typewriters. I thought you were talking about Dvorak. I was talking about Dvorak. I skipped over this by accident. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dvorak still would have been working on typewriters. You asked what made it possible for him to change the layout so dramatically. Yeah, without it like interfering with keys getting stuck together. It probably did still interfere some, but both the mechanisms had gotten smoother. They refined what kind of oil and grease and such they used. But the main development was that people weren't using those upstrike mechanisms anymore mm -hmm. uh, that typed on the underside of the page. They were using downstrike mechanisms. Um, so there was a, I think it's the Edward typewriter that I was talking about on Twitter extensively a couple weeks back. Mm -hmm. So a typewriter was designed with the type arms instead of going up underneath a panel uh, underneath this big box that they would swing up and hit the paper from, mm -hmm. somebody just turned it back upside down. Yeah. So that the arms sat off to the side and swung downward onto okay. the roller. Yeah. So you could see what you were typing as you typed. That's what the ones that you have look like, right? Yes. Yeah. That was the most popular design because you could see what you were typing as you typed. Yes. And also, if a jam happened, you saw it immediately because you were looking at the paper as you typed. If you touch type, you're looking at what you're typing, not at your fingers. Right. Okay. So people were able to see jams as soon as they happened and fixing them was easy. You would just lift up your hand and move them, move the Mm -hmm. keys back out. The, yeah, the little swing arm hammer thing. Because that's usually what gets stuck, right? Yes. Not like they, the key getting pressed down too hard and not going back up. It's the little arm that swings and hits the letter. Yes. The, yeah. the arms will catch on each other and they'll stick each other down just because they can't get the clearance to swing back. Yeah. Um, but with 
the Oliver typewriter, that's the one I was thinking of, the bat wings that came off to the side, uh -huh. you could accidentally nudge that off of your desk and destroy your $200 machine because the type arms would just be broken beyond repair. Ah, because um, they're just out there, huh? Because they're just out there. They're not protected. Right. So the innovation after that came pretty quickly. I think that was early 20s. Um, to instead of having them offset to the side, you would have a hemispherical, uh, a, a, a semicircle of the type arms all laid out in this fan mm -hmm. uh, that laid flat down uh, inside of the machine underneath a cover. Yeah. And when they swing up, That's they swing past like. that cover and then they hit the paper. But yeah. ordinarily they're inside of this heavy metal case. Yeah, that's what yours look like. That's Both what mine look like yeah. because that was the functional mechanism. Yes. That's what we found that worked and was cheap to produce. And when you when you open up the insides of these typewriters, um, even even ones that are super cheap, like my first ever typewriter that I bought, I bought one to see if I actually wanted one, um, was a Buddy L typewriter produced by Sears in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Everything in the Buddy L typewriter, except for the actual heads of the keys, is plastic. Mm -hmm. You have the spring that's metal, you have the key heads that's metal, but the type arms are plastic, the key heads are plastic, the frame is plastic, so it's really easy for things to get out of whack. This was the cheapest typewriter I could have possibly gotten. Um, yeah, do you still have that one? No, I traded it in um, at the same antique shop where I got it Right. Uh, for the uh, manual typewriter that I have, the Smith Corona from the 50s. Yeah. Um, but when you, you have two though, right? One of them is I do, you have one an electric them. one and a yes. manual one. The manual one is a Smith Corona 1950s. Mm -hmm. The electric one is also 1980s, but it was a fancier one because yeah. electric was new then. Yeah. Um, I got that for $5 at Goodwill and still haven't like done any extensive work on it except for repairing the the enter mechanism. Does it work though? Yes. Oh. Cool. I use it sometimes. Yeah. It's got a little bit smaller of a typeface than the manual one. Mm -hmm. um, but my point was, even when you open up the case of one of those really cheap, super plastic ones, mm -hmm. the shape of... I, I just wanted to mention what makes typewriters so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The shape of the type arms mm -hmm. is... I find beauty in extremely specialized function. Mm -hmm. Everything in a typewriter is designed to effectively do what it does. Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, because that design follows the way it does, that means the arms come at very specific angles, very sharp angles usually, because of the way they are cut. So you cut out a piece of metal and you can cut 30 of that same piece of metal to make a typewriter. For all of those arms, it can be the same exact shape. So you get this beautiful repetition as you distribute them through that mm -hmm. circle because of the sharp angles that they all meet, because they've all got this one little nub that comes up to keep the swing arm from going too far and damaging itself. Mm -hmm. um, they've just got all of these little specialized pieces that each contributes something new to the form, and there's so many iterations of it mm -hmm. that it adds to the beauty of the machine. When you've got a clean interior of a typewriter, I just think it's something incredible to look at. 
Uh-huh. And also, I think the distribution of language is incredible. And the fact that we've got these incredibly specialized machines that can type any piece of English that you want to is fascinating. Uh-huh. Are there typewriters that look like the ones that you have that have that same like design and like setup? Well, not necessarily set up, but that like have characters for different languages or that you can do, you know, the little, is, is yes. it diacritic? Is that the word for the, I the little marks? You would know better Like than accent I marks, yes. like in Spanish or, or the little umlauts in German. Yes. You can't type those on a normal typewriter like the one you have, can you? Mm, no. My typewriter was, my typewriters, both of them were specifically designed for English. Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, they were designed in the U.S. for people in the U.S. to use. Mm-hmm. They weren't shipped worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, there were typewriters utilized and built in other countries designed for use in their local languages. So in German, or no, I'll use French, I'm most familiar with French, I think, mm-hmm. there's several different accent marks. Uh-huh. Um, and when you see the alphabet written out, those accents are associated with the characters directly. They're not individual accents um, as part of the alphabet. An accented A is separate from a non-accented A. It's considered a different letter. So they just but have more keys then? When you look at a typewriter that's designed for French, all of those accents are on individual keys. Oh, so you have because, to go back and type them out over the letter? Yes, you can okay. type the letter and then you can backspace, backspace and type the accent. Okay, so do like keyboard, uh, sorry, not keyboards, um, typewriters that were produced in like the same time period as mm-hmm. yours, but for like other regions, do they tend to have the same like QWERTY keyboard setup that is like common in most of these things then? I I think it's similar just because... Because that's what's Remington, standard nowadays, right? It is standardized across the world pretty much nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, England's is a little bit different. They they don't have QWERTY, they have QWERTY. Um, that's weird. Instead of Y, they have Z. I think they've just swapped places of them. I think the increase in international communication and trade throughout the 20th century resulted in the layout getting more standardized in many places. Mm-hmm. And I also think that typewriter designs were commonly spread across countries, even when they weren't mainly used in those other countries, which resulted in more designs that were similar to those. Okay. So somebody could have taken uh, a, a Remington typewriter with the QWERTY layout to England, and maybe that's where someone thought, okay, let's design a typewriter like that. That's so useful. I want to make them. Um, and maybe someone in France saw the English typewriter and said, okay, I'm going to make that, but add, add a row for the accent marks or add another column for them off to the side. Yeah. Um, so you would have these different iterations on similar designs, mm-hmm. but they probably wouldn't have seen a lot of reason to change the actual letter layout yeah. because it is largely arbitrary yeah when you can see what jams are happening you can fix them immediately yeah so after the 20s after the visible type was widespread um downstrike mechanisms uh were everywhere so you could just fix any problems as they came up and it stopped mattering as much yeah so a standard layout 
um, would have just spread through communication like anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you come to the 40s and the 50s, you've got this standard layout, uh, and that's where a lot of our antique typewriters start from is the 50s, mm-hmm. because they were super, super widespread by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Smith Corona... it. That's the manual yeah, that's, one that you have? That's the manual one that I have. Smith Corona was a huge manufacturer. Um, I think they moved on to do receipt paper. But... <laughs> huh. Okay. But by the time you get to the 40s and 50s, everything's the same downstrike mechanism, the same layout on every U.S. typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, and most countries and languages would have had similar layouts that were just done like that yeah that but with like extra letters or extra accent marks or whatever um but when you get to the 40s and 50s i'm not sure the dates on most of these things but you get a lot of innovations in the 20th century around the same time that all sort of bled into each other and culminated Mm -hmm. in new methods of typing new methods of writing um, but still carry through what we do today. Mm-hmm. So in, as? in the early 20th century, Braille was invented. Yes. Braille was originally handwritten only. Huh. So the designer had, I, I believe the designer was blind. Uh-huh. Um, I don't have his name handy. Hold on, I would like to. When you say handwritten, do you mean they just like pressed down into paper? You had an awl and you had paper. Okay. Um, these days, uh, it, w- it was a fairly early adaptation to change the style to add a frame so that you could tell where the awl was going into the paper. Uh-huh. And you could create a consistent size of pattern because that's really important for touch reading. Mm-hmm. Um, who designed Braille? Louis Braille, who was completely blind. Cool. Great. He designed a massive system that is Mm -hmm. widespread today. Um, But he did invent it with a slate and a punch, which is still the method of handwriting Braille. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, But you would punch into the surface within this square frame uh, so that you could get each of your six dots into the right placement. Uh And each frame would be one character on the page. Right. Um, that obviously, it's as slow as handwriting. Yeah. People, people who learn to do this and get very adept at it can write in Braille as fast as a sighted person can write handwriting. Yeah. Um, but it is still a lot slower than typing. Yeah. Uh, and blind typists deserve to also be able to understand what they've written. So the Braille typewriter came along to fix those problems. Yeah. Is it also set up in a QWERTY layout? I'm going to touch on that. Okay. The thing, that's why I brought it up. The thing about the Braille typewriter is when you are typing, when you're typing visual letters, you press the letter that you want to see and it strikes the paper and the typewriter automatically advances. Mm -hmm. When you're typing in Braille, it wouldn't make sense to have as many keys as there are possible characters. Mm-hmm. because you can't see everything on the typewriter. The, the user is presumed to not be able to see the keys. Yeah. They can only feel them, which does limit what you're able to do 
as far as uh, hand placement. Right. If you can't see the key that you're reaching for, then you're probably going to miss it, which will lead to confusion down the line. Mm -hmm. So in order to be more accessible to that, uh, the Braille typewriter only has six keys. Oh, so for each of the six different dots in each Braille character. Yes. Right. Um, probably closer to seven or eight. Uh, there's usually a key for uh, space. Oh, okay. So that you could just advance the typewriter and move to a new line. Mm -hmm. There would there would usually be eight keys, I believe. So there's a space and an enter then? Yes, cool. I think so. Um, I need water. I'm getting too excited talking about Braille. Um, so with the Braille keyboard, because you've only got those six keys, each key corresponds to one dot. Yeah. And so do you have to press them all at one time to do one character? Yes. Will it like proceed automatically or can you like backspace if you like missed a dot in a character? If you like Would you be able to tell? I don't know. That's it's... what I'm wondering if you like if you're trying to make a character that has four dots and you accidentally only press 3, does it advance automatically and you have to backspace in order to edit it? Well, that's the thing as well as if you miss a key on a normal typewriter, you can't edit that either. Okay, that's fair. Most typewriters didn't have backspace mechanisms until until whiteout tape came along in like the 80s. Hmm. So you can well how how do the ones with the like accent marks and stuff work then if you can't backspace to put an accent mark over a letter? There's a backspace movement so that if you ha accidentally add too many spaces you can type something new or you can overtype what you already typed. But that mark is already on the page. Yeah. You can't erase it. Yeah. But there is a key to move backward a space. Yes, that's what I was wondering. Is is the backspace standard on a typewriter then? I the don't backspace know. is standard on a typewriter. I don't yes. know these things. I'm sorry. This is your that, special. This is not mine. <laughs> the backspace key was not something that I thought was important enough to bring up. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I just don't know any I, shit. I don't know if a Braille typewriter has a backspace key. I would presume because the expected typist cannot see the page, it doesn't. Okay. Most people using a Braille typewriter can't see the page they're working with. Yeah. Well, they can't. They don't see it. Yeah, but like if you if you pull your paper out and you're like, oh shoot, then I you, missed a mark on that one. At that can point, can you like pop you it would, back in and edit it? It would be too hard to navigate to the right spot. I don't I think it'd be worth right. the time. And if you run a page through a Braille typewriter again, I think you'd end up crushing the Braille. Oh, that's true. Because of the way the roller moves. Oh, it does have that thing. Okay. Yes. Never I, mind. At that point, it would be way easier just to fix with a stylus. Okay. I don't know any shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you they print at the same scale yeah. as a stylus would. You okay. could just lay your stylus over the page and pop your character in. Yeah. Okay. If you miss one. Or you could just leave the typo as is. Mm -hmm. Either way would work. There's more advanced braille printing now. Um, it's, it's normally done like with a press for mass production, mm -hmm. but a lot of braille typing is still done with those six key braille typewriters. Mm -hmm. That The braille typewriter is what is called a corded keyboard because you press multiple keys at once. Mm -hmm. And the type arms are specifically designed to all be able to be pressed together at once. Yeah. So that they don't impede each other when they're going up or down because you need them all to be able to act at the same time. Yeah. There's way more typewriters like that. <laughs> oh? Um, there's, there's way more keyboard layouts like that. Corded keyboards 
are an entire class of typing device. How is that word spelled? C-H-O-R-D-E-D. Chord, like on a piano. Oh, I thought you meant like C-O-R-D-E-D. No, I don't mean not wireless. Okay. (laughs) Chord like playing a piano because you hit multiple keys at the same time to produce a different result. Okay, that makes much more sense. Thank you. <laughs> if you if you press multiple keys at the same time on, you know, a, a 40s Smith Corona, you're just going to end up with the, the, a broken a, typewriter. A jam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're you're going to be able to fix it if it's just four keys, but yeah. yes, uh, <laughs> you're just going to end up jammed. Um, but typewriters that are specially designed to do that, they have they're harder to build. They're a lot more expensive because each type arm is specialized um but they all it can fit as many letters as you want onto the paper at a time as as you need Hmm. and at the the most common corded keyboard layout is used for court stenography Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so You've mentioned this a couple times. <laughs> a couple. Uh, court stenography, legal stenography, is copying down exactly what is said during a hearing, during a session of court. Yes. Um, it takes an incredibly skilled stenographer to be able to do that, because in order to effectively type or write as fast as someone is speaking, Usually, you have to be able to type or write at 150 words a minute. Yeah, that's way faster than I can do. Double what either of us can do, yeah. Uh, not double, but it's so much faster. I, I type 80 words a minute. I type, like, 90. <laughs> I type 80 words a minute, 150 is almost double my typing speed. I'd have to type 1 and the 7 eighths words for every one word I type now. Yeah. It's way more. All right. Um... But the way that court stenography was done, or was done prior to the invention of the stenography typewriter, um, you would have to do it all in shorthand. Yeah. So that's that's. I'm uh, quite familiar with shorthand, actually. I'm less familiar with shorthand, but you 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 write out simplified symbols that talk that describe phonemes, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of being spelling out the entire word, they are the sounds. Yes. Um, the stenotype, the common brand for a stenography typewriter, was a stenotype, uh, which I think came about in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um. It was designed on the same principles as shorthand. So an experienced stenographer would conceivably not need much experience to be able to learn to use it because it operated on the same rules as shorthand. Okay. When a a, a stenotype typewriter is, uh, let's see, how many keys is it? Four keys for this hand, five keys for this hand, and a line in the middle. So... Ten. 10, 20 keys plus a space bar. Oh. Um, m- maybe slightly different, but it, it varied across models mm-hmm. um, and it varies across hobbyist models today. Mm-hmm. But the stenotype board um, has 20 keys and you can press as many of them at once as you need to because they all type at a different position on the line. So every single word that you type types onto this ribbon of paper, like receipt paper width. Okay. 
and the letters aren't pushed together. They aren't moved together naturally. Mm -hmm. They just all appear at their typed positions, at the positions where their heads normally type the word. Okay. Where the letter is normally placed. It doesn't move side to side at all. Mm -hmm. When you type a word, you press all of the letters you need to press for that word. Mm-hmm. and the writer automatically advances to the whole next line. Okay. Um, the way this was done was effectively each word that you would type would contain different codes for different sounds. Most words you can make up with uh, most of the letters of the word. Um, say song, you can type the word song entirely. Mm-hmm. on a stenotype board, I believe, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the, um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of words that you can type out fully in one chord. Yeah. But a lot of words you can't because it's missing a lot of letters. So those letters, you would have to press multiple keys at the same time, sometimes with the same finger, in order to make the code for that letter. And then with the stenotype writer, you would have to go through and interpret those codes later in order to copy them out into longhand. This was essentially shorthand for typists. Okay. So uh, let me, I'm trying to figure out what you mean about them being in the same place on a vertical line. So if you typed a bunch of letters at once, so if you typed Mm. like the word the, and the H is on one side and the T is on the other side, you're going to just get the letters in the wrong order? That's the thing, is there's specific rules for how these letters are progressed, how you move throughout the keyboard in order to type a word properly so that it can be interpreted. Okay, so the purpose of this type of keyboard is not to type actual words, but just to type messy shorthand. Yes. Okay. It is messy shorthand, but it's incredibly fast. Yes. Most typewriter typists... But you couldn't use this to, like, actually type something that would make sense to someone who doesn't understand shorthand is the thing. No. Okay. That's where digital comes in. Digital typewriters started... Computerized typewriters started being a thing in the 90s as we were making the transition towards personal computers. A typewriter that has computerized components doesn't have the capability of a computer, Mm -hmm. but it may be able to run some simple processes. Like, I think there's some typewriters that can actively do math for you. They've got, like, uh, a 10 key attached to the side Mm -hmm. that you could type in your things and it'd print out your result. Okay. Um, You could, you know, you... You could type your inputs and it would give you a response. Um, Computerized stenography, getting into the 90s especially. So if you had one of those ones that you do the shorthand on, it'll interpret it automatically for you and print out what it actually says. Yes. Right now... Except the like stuff that you would need context for. Right now there's modern stenotype machines that people still use in court stenography. Mm -hmm. Um, You just have this little box that you bring with you that's got those 20 keys on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you type all of your stenography keywords into that, and it creates a digital copy Mm -hmm. of what you've actually typed in plain words. Right. 
And, and that you would then have to go back and edit and make sure that it like interpreted everything correctly. Make based sure on it context. interpreted everything correctly and that there weren't any words it can't interpret. Right. If there's a code it doesn't understand, it'll usually just spell that out and leave it in all caps for you to go back and replace with the word you meant to type. Right. Um, but most of the time, modern programs are able to determine from context clues. Hmm just based on the frequency with which words are typically placed in succession. Hmm. Any transcriptionist or captioner or anything who has the capability to go back and edit it should. Yeah. Because it's so easy to make mistakes on the fly. But with stenography, uh, with with a stenotype-designed keyboard, you, you can do the initial process at real time. Most transcribers working with a standard QWERTY keyboard will only type at a 4 to 1 ratio. What does that mean? So every one minute of audio that they're trying to transcribe, it'll take them four minutes to accurately type out the text in that audio. Mm -hmm. um, a live stenographer probably would only need to do a 2 to 1 ratio because they can uh, type it at real time and then go back and edit selectively. Okay. So it could be almost as fast as real time, or it could be real-time doubled, depending on the number of edits that they need to do, mm -hmm. and whether they need to listen to the whole audio again to do it. Um, but it does mean that they're working at least twice as fast as a standard transcriptionist. Okay. And if you're transcribing live for a heated courtroom, uh, you probably need to be able to type twi twice as fast. Okay. Live captioning uh, uses the same sort of concepts a lot of the time, mm -hmm. uh, except that they'll have a separate reviewer and a delay of about 10 seconds. Okay. So the reviewer will go th will watch in real time the captions and make sure that they are correct yeah. before they are put on the screen. Right. But the captioner, the person actually typing, mm -hmm. is only typing. Okay. So it's all real time. Right. The thing about stenotype machines and court stenography in general right now, mm -hmm. is that it's thousands of dollars. Yeah. You, uh, it's, it's all proprietary. There's specialized software, there's specialized classes. Most people take college courses and get like a bachelor's degree in stenography. Hmm. It's a ridiculously expensive skill to get, but uh -huh. people have been working to make it open source. Of course they have. So there is a program called Plover. P-L-O-V-E-R. All right. Um, Plover is a program for normal computers that can take key presses from a standard keyboard and interpret them as if they were coming from a stenography keyboard. Okay. So if you have a keyboard that allows for enough keys to be pressed at once, Mm-hmm. Some of them, in the wiring, they can't take that many inputs, mm -hmm. but a lot of keyboards can take uh, up to as many inputs as there are keys on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, if they can take enough inputs at once to appropriately type stenography, uh, then Plover can translate those key presses into stenography keywords mm -hmm. and then into plain text. Mm. So people with the right equipment, which is not expensive to get, can install a free program and use that 
same kind of principle to learn stenography skills and learn to type twice as fast as they currently do. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't know if yet if people are using that to become professional court stenographers. Probably not. But I am certain that a lot of people who have that kind of skill now work in transcription and captioning mm -hmm. because they're able to do it really fast. Yeah. Is that why you're interested in this then? Yes. My combined <laughs> interest with keyboards and typewriters as functions of expression and as things which in their necessary comple complexity and repetition are beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and like the fact that I kind of miss playing piano but don't. It's all sort of combined into me really, really wanting to spend $100 to get a hobbyist stenography keyboard. Okay, <laughs> that's valid, I guess. We do also just have, like, a, a fucking piano if you want to play the piano again, my dude. I've been considering printing off some sheet music, but I can never find sheet music that I like. There, there are corded keyboards that are only five keys mm -hmm. that were built to be the back of a phone. Huh, okay. So that while you're holding the phone that you're typing on, you just manipulate the keys that are holding the phone already. Mm -hmm. um, because that's where your fingers naturally sit. Mm -hmm. And pressing combinations of those letters would get you different letters. Okay. So pressing just your thumb might get you A. I don't know the actual layout, so I'm speculating. And pressing your thumb and your pinky might get you Y. Okay. Would you be able to make enough co uh, combinations with only four keys, or only five keys, in order to get the whole alphabet? I don't know any math, so... Each, <laughs> each key has an on and an off position, right? Yeah. So there's nine with... combinations you can get just from that, because you can have them all off, and that just means you're not typing anything. But uh, having all of the keys... All of the keys could be off all of the keys could be on, and you could have any one key on, right? Yeah. So you've got six there. Yeah, and then there's and like then there's however many multiplications of the combinations. I think it does end up being over 30. Oh, yeah. So you could type all 26 letters in, in yeah. English with that. You could probably type every letter and number. Um, okay. But, yeah. Um, before we had touchscreens, there was a lot of innovation going into that, and I wish there was more, because I hate touchscreens. I mean, that's valid, I guess. They're useful for drawing. I love drawing on my phone with my cool little stylus that works real well with it. Uh-huh. Touchscreens are bad for navigation. I don't like them. Okay. They're really bad for typing. That's fair. When I get my new phone... Uh -huh. At some point when I have the cash, I'm going to order a case that they made for it that you can clip a keyboard onto the front. That's valid. <laughs> I am willing to lose three inches of screen space in order to have better typing because that's the kind of person I am. Yeah, your fingers are too big to type on a phone screen, huh? I type so slow on a phone. I'm going so from sorry. like 80 words per minute on a computer keyboard 
to 20 on a phone is grueling. Oh, wow. That's so much slower. I I cannot type as fast on a phone as I can on my computer, but I can still type pretty fast. I think I can type maybe 50 or 60 words a minute on a phone. You type a lot faster than the average phone user then. Every user review of the phone I am getting in a week. Uh-huh complains about the fact that it is completely encased in glass. There is a curved screen on the front, there is a curved glass back panel, and every user who has used this phone without a case has dropped it. Uh Uh-huh. Every one of them. This is what I mean by form over function. Instead of making a phone that is usable, they -hmm. decided to make one that was shiny. And everybody's dropped it. And a lot of these get broken. Yeah. Is this the one that you're getting or the one that you have? The one that I'm getting. It's coming with a case. Oh, good. The person you bought it from has two cases that they're shipping with it. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Function should be first. Your Your device should be usable before it is pretty. And usability will eventually lead to it being beautiful. Okay. I always think this. There's right. nothing more lovely than a really sharp knife. Because okay. All right, Hannibal Lecter. Like, Jesus. There's nothing more pretty than a really specialized tool that is well built to do what it is doing. Yeah, I know what you mean, but like, that was a really weird way I was, to put that. I was specifically thinking of June's Kitchen. Yeah. His knives are very, very sharp, and that's because they are well built and he keeps them in good condition yeah and when you see the evenness of the curve of the blade of a really well built really well kept knife it's beautiful i think i guess when something is built to so specifically fill the function that it does and it does it well and it is well maintained you have a thing of beauty and i think trying to introduce aesthetic over the functionality of your device is always a mistake. It's like, it's like removing the headphone jack. Yeah, that's bad. It's actively removing functionality because they think having an extra jack on the device is either too expensive or too ugly. Yeah. And I don't think that is a valid reason to remove a function of technology. It's, you're right, but also I don't think either of those reasons are why they actually did it. They wanted to do it so that they could sell their proprietary shit that works with their headphones. I think that falls under too expensive. The option of leaving the headphone jack would reduce sales of their proprietary headphones. Yeah. So that would make it more expensive in business eyes to leave the headphone jack in. Well, it sucks. It does suck. I hate it. It's capitalist garbage. (laughs) Zero out of ten. But, like, you look at something that's so specialized like the typewriter, and it's... The fact that it does the thing it's supposed to do is the aesthetic. The fact that it does the thing it's supposed to do well is is what makes it beautiful. All of these aesthetic photos of typewriters that you see every time you try and look for a specific model of typewriter on the internet are of that beautiful half-moon shape of all of those type bars in line. Mm -hmm. Or of the heads of the keys that are shaped exactly right to do what they do. Hmm. I, I think that 
the beauty you of sure the function. You sure spend an awful lot of time looking at typewriters, huh? Because this is something that I've never considered looking at. That was the joke, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love you. When you're trying to find information about the 1912 Oliver typewriter, <laughs> you and know. And all you can find is this relatable experience. Pictures. And all you can find is those darn millennial aesthetic posts. Oh my god. I love you. No. You're the I'm, worst. Yeah. I don't... I'm barely a millennial. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we are the last year of millennials. My point is, the, the function of something creates its beauty, and I don't think you need to manufacture beauty to go with it. That's why the GameCube controller is prettier than the Switch controller. I mean, I think the Switch controller does what it, what it what it do. I think it could be more optimized. It sucks and it's hard to hold in your hands. Yes. The GameCube controller is a good chunky boy. The GameCube controller <laughs> is very good in the hand. Uh-huh. It's it's like it's a good shape. Mm-hmm. Your fingers are able to go to the places they need to go. Uh-huh. There are extremely valid gripes with the Switch controller. Uh-huh. It was designed to be modular above uh, being more functional in both of its forms yeah i don't like it yeah (laughs) that's my opinion that's fair (laughs) um have had extensive interactions with uh competitive smash brothers players (laughs) so to speak Uh (laughs) uh-huh i know all about that shit okay (laughs) shout out shout out to the msoe boys who don't remember who i am almost certainly and would not listen to this podcast if i paid them (laughs) (laughs) oh boy I mean, I was not out when I knew these people, so, like, there is no way. Listen, I... (laughs) But, yeah, I knew some people who played competitive Smash. (laughs) For a bit. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't want to admit that it was not specifically typewriters and antique typewriters that were my special interest, but rather typing. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because everyone that I have met who talks about mechanical keyboards out loud is absolutely insufferable. Gamer trash. Uh-huh. Like, and <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And a lot of them are not only insufferable in like the in the gamer way. The elitist way. They're insufferable in the elitist white college boy way. Yes. And that is what many of my interactions with these sort of people have been. And some of them are like 30 and they're still elitist white college boys. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> and it I really don't do want like that. to be like that. I... Oh, God, I hope I saved a link to this. But the other day on Twitter, I found someone who makes custom keyboards and custom keycaps. Mm-hmm. Um that I think she's a trans girl, but she makes these very cute little, like, yes. um, character keycaps. If I find it again, I'll yes, send it to you. I saw a way. post that was, yeah. like, um, one of them was, like, a little teddy bear face that was just on the escape key, yeah. and the rest of the keyboard was uh, trans pride flag colors. Yes, that's it was very good. cute. You should send that <laughs> my way. The, that is the phenomenon of... Trans women programmers was eye-opening to me in that you don't have to be a dick to be a programmer. Yeah. You don't have to be a (laughs) raging bigot. In my experience, 
it's a lot of uh, several of the trans women I know who are into technology and stuff kind of used to be those insufferable college people and, and they like, learned grew out of it when they yeah. realized they were trans <laughs> because they were exposed to other trans people I think it's similar like, to the phenomenon of like trans mask people being like insufferably elitist mm. about like not like other girls yeah that kind yeah. of shit when they're younger it's like trying to deal with your internalized mm -hmm. shit in a way that still like allows you to be in your assigned gender because yeah. you're afraid of leaving it yeah i feel like that's a pretty common it's, experience it's trying to rationalize the distance you feel yeah i get that yeah like you you have to be elitist about something because it makes you different from the other people around mm -hmm. you who are interested in it because like you don't want to admit that the reason that you're not like the people around you is because you're not the same gender as them yeah you just want to think you're better than them instead yeah. you know like when yeah. you're in, you have a bunch of people who are interested in the same thing but like you're secretly trans and mm -hmm. you're like oh no it's not that i'm 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 not like different. I'm just better. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's pretty common. I I can see that rationale. Specifically, though, the phenomenon of trans women programmers and who like, like tech people got into programming and then came out and are good people, but still into tech. Yeah. Um. It just, like, it, it, it didn't open my eyes only to the fact that you can be in tech and not be a, a, a horrible raging bigot. It opened my eyes to the fact that that being in tech doesn't make you a bigot. Yeah. Like, that, that being involved in this interest won't make me into a bad person from being an okay person. Yeah. I like to think I'm an okay person. I try. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> but, like, yeah. I, you don't have to validate that. It's fine. <laughs> but, like, it, it's... There was this concept in my brain, especially a couple of years ago, when I was just barely coming out, that if I associated with the things that made the rest of my family raging assholes then I, too, would become a raging asshole by yeah. association. Yeah. Do you have any other things about keyboards that you wanted to mention? No, I wanted to conclude on the fact that I really want this keyboard. Check it out, though. I'll put the link to the store in the description. It's gboards.ca. It's a Canadian designer who hand makes all these really cool custom keyboards. So, like, stenography stuff specifically, yeah? The stenography stuff, and he does this ergonomic keyboard that he's still refining the design on. And, oh, yeah. Uh, he's got a even smaller corded keyboard that, like, it's only... 12 keys yeah there's you sent me links to a couple of 10 things. 10 there's there's a key for each finger <laughs> i will also put in the notes mm -hmm. one of my favorite twitter follows uh-huh at foon f-o-o-n-e uh-huh is post that the one that talks about all the, all weird the time old about and floppy shit? disks and weird keyboards and weird old tech and they have been so fun to follow so if you are interested in the same sort of weird esoteric computer bullshit I am, I encourage that you follow them. Especially if you like floppy disks. They really like floppy disks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't follow this account, but I see you retweet stuff from them a lot, and like, yeah. It's been 
three hours since we started recording and this episode is going to be a fucking slog to edit. I'm so sorry. I love you. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Anyway, this has been Spin, the Drunk Special Interest Podcast, <laughs> where I am no longer drunk because I... You haven't had any wine in like an hour. I, yeah, I finished drinking talking. like an hour ago and we just kept talking and now I'm not drunk anymore. So it's the it's just the special interest podcast and we, we are done now. This is it. Yeah, we're done. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>